This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In response to the coronavirus outbreak, Congress authorized historic levels of emergency funding. The government's coronavirus response includes $2.6 trillion in economic relief to individual citizens, loans for businesses, and support for hospitals and other medical providers, as well as economic relief for impacted businesses, industries, and state, local, and tribal governments. A key part of this effort was the establishment of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC, which is charged with providing a transparent accounting of covered funds, the effective coordination of oversight to avoid duplication and overlap, and actionable insight into fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement to identify major risks that cut across program and agency boundaries. So what is the PRAC doing to prevent and detect fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement of the COVID-19 relief funds? How is the PRAC promoting transparency and a coordinated comprehensive oversight? And what are some of the key challenges facing the PRAC? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Bob Westbrooks, Executive Director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC. Bob, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So Bob, I'd like to start off with some basics. Could you provide us with a uh, overview of the mission and history of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee PRAC? Yeah, so let me let me start with a, a little bit of historical context, if I can. So, in, in some ways, I think it's hard to forget this background, and in other ways, it's hard to remember because uh, we've been through so much in the past eight months. But it was January third when I think the CDC director got the first report of the mysterious respiratory illness and. I think about a month later, we had 12 cases in the U.S. And about a month after that was, uh, you know, it was a full-blown crisis in America with, you know, emergency declaration orders and stay-at-home orders and and pretty big legislation. One of the big laws that was passed was the, the CARES Act, which many people know about. The CARES Act created the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. And it was modeled after the the recovery board um, that was created in the Recovery Act some years ago. Uh, There are some key differences, but um, we are a committee of 21 inspector generals. There are 22 other IGs who oversee pandemic funding, but there are 21 members on the PRAC. And then there's a a full-time staff. In plain terms, our mission is to help ensure that the $2.6 trillion in uh, in uh, taxpayer money being well spent, not being wasted or lost to, to fraud. 
and is to help ensure that the federal government's response to the pandemic is effective and, and efficient. Because, you know, it's our it's our position that every tax dollar lost to fraud or waste is one less dollar available, you know, to fund other very important programs for our for our neighbors in need. Very important, timely mission, however short the history is. But, you know, given your critical mission, I, I want to understand the operational scope of the PRAC. How are you organized? What's the size of your budget, number of full-time employees, and your footprint, if you will? Yeah, great question. So, uh, like I said, we're a committee of 21 IGs. That uh, So we're a committee of the larger Council of IGs on Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI, which a lot of people know about. Um the committee is organized around five subcommittees and three issue groups, each of which are chaired by an IG. Um, and then at the staff level, the PRAC professional staff, which I lead as executive director, um, we have about uh, 21 FTEs at the moment, which includes detailees. Um, we have a $80 million budget. Uh, we've got a five-year statutory life. And we are organized around three lines of business, transparency, oversight and accountability, and outreach and engagement. You talk about our geographic footprint. You know, we, we were born during a global pandemic and under stay-at-home orders. So um, we have staff all over the country. You know, our, our idea is to, is to recruit the very best. And sometimes the very best is within the beltway, and sometimes it's not, and, and talent shouldn't be uh, dictated by one zip code, uh, but really what they bring to the table. So we, of our 21, we have folks all over. So Bob, what are your duties and responsibilities as the executive director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee? Executive director um, leads the professional staff of the PRAC and implements the vision of the larger committee. So whether it's uh, establishing policy, lead, selecting, recruiting, leading staff, um, all of that is the is the you know within the purview of the executive director. So, and that's what I've been doing for those since April 27th when I got appointed. It's you know setting a vision with a stand-up plan and finding the right people to implement that vision, making sure that the you know our stakeholders' vision, both our IGs but also members of Congress and their staff and uh, and our other public stakeholders to make sure we're, we're meeting the needs uh, um, of our, you know, for both transparency and oversight and accountability. So, Bob, regarding your responsibilities and duties, what are the top challenges that you've faced in your position? And more importantly, how have you sought to address some of those challenges? So I think at the top level, you know, the 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 biggest challenges are, are around setting an organizational vision and and the pace. That's what's different from a lot of organizations is the pace and tempo at which we have to work. The problems we're addressing are just so massive in scale, um, and you could one could easily be overwhelmed, right? If you don't have laser focus and establish you know manageable organizational pace, uh, one of the guiding principles we we wrote in our stand-up plan was, and this was very deliberate, so was, we will move forward with the required urgency in a swift and methodical manner. It would be very easy for me to sprint out of the gate and hire up a bunch of people to do the wrong things. <laughs> um, and then a year from now, we figure out we've missed the mark. So we've been taking that uh, that principle to heart and uh, and really working in a swift and methodical manner. So you know, given the short history of the PRAC and the the fact that you're operating while the pandemic is still happening and it's sort of like um, flying the plane while you're building it, so to speak. 
I was wondering, along with the challenges you've just uh, noted and, and that you were encountering, what surprised you most um, since taking over this role? You know, I'm I'm most surprised and and frankly saddened as an American yeah. um, at the level of fraud that we're witnessing. Um, you know, agencies most certainly, you know, they could have done better and should have done better in building in fraud prevention measures in some of these programs, particularly the payroll protection program. But that doesn't excuse, you know, the many, many Americans and others who are taking advantage of this crisis. It's just commercial looting on a scale that we've never seen before. In our society, our free democratic society, I mean, we can't get to the place where fraud is just so pervasive that people don't fear the risk of getting caught or the the, the stigma or the consequences of their actions. And, you know, the biggest surprise is, you know, this where this kind of uh, – preventing a free fall into this everybody's doing it kind of moral justification on some of the the the, the fraud areas so um, on a positive side though I will I, I say I'm I'm stunned and so proud of the uh, my IG colleagues who have stepped up to this crisis and 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 I don't think uh, the average citizen or or, uh, or stakeholder realizes that these IGs have full-time day jobs that, and their work has gotten incrementally more complex. Yet we come together every Tuesday at one o'clock as a community to tackle the larger whole of government problems. So I'm just uh, I'm really very pleasantly surprised at how we're able to come together and and uh, and work as a, as as one. So. So, Bob, I want to know a little bit more about yourself and your career path. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are? Sure. So I'm a uh, career uh, civil servant. In April, I stepped down as the IG of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and I have since retired from a 26-year federal career to, to accept this challenge. Um, uh, and if you could believe it, in, in April, I was actually on a leisurely midday stroll with my wife and, and son. Uh, walking off lunch and talking about uh, how I it's probably time for me to retire and go out to pasture and take a low key low key part time job closer to home and I get a I get a call on an unrecognized from an unrecognized cell number and I normally would ignore the call of course and uh, but I answered it that day and uh, I just couldn't say no to this opportunity so my next retirement will be a couple of years out from here while we tackle this but I came into government with a law degree and a bar license and. I walked into a GS7 role as an entry-level criminal investigator, and that's what that's what I'm wired to do is put together puzzles, you know. And um, yeah. I was I was a postal inspector for my early career. Learned how to work independently and put cases together. And um, I'm an explorer by nature, so I I realized I needed to uh, to develop some uh, financial literacy. So I got my CPA license, and and then with uh, when IT security issues came around, I realized I needed to bone up in that area as well. So I got my certification as a IT auditor. You know, I'm, I'm reasonably proficient uh, in, in those disciplines, but I'm certainly not the guy you want to hire to do your taxes. It's certainly helpful to, to be able to speak that language, right? And to be able to cross disciplines from, uh, with the auditors, investigators, and lawyers. And uh, from there, you know, I, I, um, the Postal Service was uh, was one of the best places to work, and I got a, a chance to do so many different things. And so one of the things I did was I got a chance to serve on detail to the U.S. Senate. Um, and I was uh, and I learned so much about the legislative and congressional oversight processes. I was up there in 2001 during the anthrax mailing attack. So my nice. two two worlds collided. Um, 
and from there, you know, I just I took a series of leadership positions, um, large OIGs, small OIGs, and and um, different levels of responsibility with and both the investigative and audit side, and then finally reached my career goal of uh, being an IG. So, Bob, given your background and your experiences both in government and uh, in your various capacities. How do you lead? What are the characteristics that makes one an effective leader? And perhaps you can outline for us some of your leadership principles that you follow. So, and, and I, I have been around different agencies. And one conclusion I've drawn is that um, there's no one size fits all singular approach. You know, it's leadership is a practice to me, uh, yeah. like parenting. You know, some days I get it right, other days not so much. But every day is a do-over, and that's a message I try to regularly message to staff, you know, to own your mistakes, own, clean it up, and get back to work, you know. And um, as core principles, I value uh, accountability and resiliency. Uh, I place a high premium on that. And I believe, you know, it's situational leadership, and, and, and uh, leaders fundamentally need to honestly self-reflect and have the ability to course correct. Um, and I think those are critical skills. I think that, you know, people fundamentally want to be, at least in government service, and I think it's probably a base, basic human trait. I think fundamentally people want to be left alone. They want to do good work and they want to be recognized for their efforts. So we practice what's called optimal autonomy, right, where you, you strive to give staff the, the level of autonomy appropriate for their level, position, and experience. And it's not conferred automatically, right? You have to earn it. It's like a bank account with debits and credits. And you sync up with your boss. And the more your boss trusts you, the more autonomy you get. Just a final point on it, you know, give an example. Just, you know, there's been um, just in since April, um, there's been three rules that I, I didn't practice these three rules before. But everybody that comes into the organization gets the same talk as from whether it's self-leadership or organizational leadership. It's the three rules for us are you know, get out in front, but not too far out in front that you lose your way, right? Find the win-win whenever possible. And the huge one for us is don't jump to solutions. Um, it's easy because of the sense of urgency to say, oh, let's do this, let's do that. But you got to have the self-discipline to be, and be methodical and don't jump to the solution, but study the problem. Um, so that's sort of, that's an example on that situational leadership of, you know, that didn't really, those, those rules didn't exist a year ago for me. And now they're sort of driving everything I do. What are the strategic priorities for the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee? I'll ask its executive director, Bob Westbrooks, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Our world is no longer one of simple problems. Even when the task calls for a discrete effort, it is situated within a complex system. In government, the resources needed to properly address these wicked complex problems often transcend the capacity of any single agency. How can the complexity formula help us tackle complex challenges? And how can we translate opportunity 
into action? I'll explore these questions and more with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. David, first off, I'd like to talk about complexity. What is complexity? And what are the conditions that make something complex? Well, we talk about uh, complexity as a class of challenge type. Um, and really, we, we like to define it by contrasting it with simple and complicated challenges. So simple and complicated challenges are basically solved problems. Um, there's a known solution. It's a matter of executing a known checklist. And you get repeatable and predictable results when you do that. Um, but when you're dealing with something that's complex, it's not in that category at all. It's categorically different. Um, it's different every time. It's nonlinear. There is no checklist. And so it's very different um, from those problems that we can solve just by executing a checklist. And David, in the book, you illustrate um, the differences between the complicated and the complex. Could you elaborate on that? So, uh, for example, um, installing an accounting system. You'd probably say that's complicated. I, I can hire somebody who's done it many times before and they'll do for me what they've done for many other people. Whereas taking out cost um, is going to be a very unique kind of challenge every time I confront it based on whatever organization I'm in, whatever situation I'm in, the time, the technology and everything else that's going on that day. Um, instilling you know, procedures for IT is probably complicated, a step-by-step way to engage and activate IT on a problem versus a challenge like IT modernization, which would be uh, far more complex than that in terms of the moving pieces and the scope and scale and uniqueness of the challenge to every uh, system that tries to get at that. Uh, David, can complex challenges be solved with the tools used to solve complicated tasks? There are known solutions They can be solved time and time again by basically executing a known set of steps. But complicated challenges require some level of expertise to execute those steps. So the way that you go about solving a complicated challenge is either you have the expertise or you find an expert and you hire them to solve it for you. They might have to interview a few people to configure their known solution, Um, but they will solve it for you. But when you're dealing with something that's complex, you're dealing with something that's essentially new each time you confront it. Um, so a growth challenge, you know, is a complex challenge, and you might have gone through something related to growth 10 years ago, but it's going to be very different this time. So if you try to reach out and find an expert in growth, um, they're going to be just as confounded by the new situation as you are, and in fact, um, more confounded because they know less about your situation. So when you try to go about solving something that's complex by using the complicated approach of engaging an expert, uh, you're actually introducing all sorts of additional challenges into the scenario, and you're just not going to get at solutions. And and as a follow-up, David, why does complexity require leaders to develop and adopt new ways of thinking and problem-solving? So really, we talk about the need to adopt an abundance mindset when it comes to the talent that's required to solve something complex. But as you think about your complex challenge, you really need to take on a mindset that, you know, the answers lie inside and around my organization within my ecosystem. And it's just a matter of recognizing that I have an abundance 
of talent that I can tap into. Um, I don't need to outsource this to someone else. And in fact, outsourcing this to someone else means that um, they're going to get really nicely steeped in my challenge. Um, they're going to figure something out for me, but my people are not going to understand or believe that that's necessarily the right solution. And that's why um, we see real struggles with execution on those kinds of solutions that have been developed, let's say, by a uh, management consultant who may have developed an excellent solution, but again, without um, the co-creation of the people who are going to be you know, required to execute it. More information on this and other Centre resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Centre for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Centre This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bob Westbrooks, Executive Director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC. So the PRAC released its strategic plan through 2025, which is on the PRAC website. And so if our listeners want to download it, it's available there. Can you briefly outline for us the key strategic priorities for the PRAC? Yeah, we've got, we've got um, you know, uh, Four, you know, main priorities, right? It's transparency. And some of this comes from the statute and some of it's inferred from the statute. But, you know, certainly um, transparency is a major thing for us. And we operate a website for that. Coordinated comprehensive oversight is a is another uh, stri- strategic priority um, for us. And um, effective and efficient operations is is major for us. You know, we need to make sure we're leading by example, right? IG should set the pace, not just try to keep up. And so um, that's essentially, you know, how how we're organizing our activities and and, uh, and our staffing, our, our uh, roadmaps, our, you know, one-year roadmaps on what we're trying to accomplish and so forth. Very important. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you're kind of building the organization as the situation is unfolding. So what has it been like to set up an organization in the middle of a pandemic where everyone is working remotely? Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's not easy. There are uh, down in the weeds logistical issues. Um, so you have like, how do I get people PIV cards? Um, how do I get them laptops? And People don't think about it, but, you know, it's not like we control those variables because, of course, you have to go to agencies like General Services Administration for your PIV card. And 
You have to order laptops from a manufacturer and there might be supply chain issues, which we experienced with government certified or uh, spec laptops. We weren't able to get them right away. You have to have a, 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 a back-end HR function that can onboard a lot of people very quickly. So it was super challenging and it can be overwhelming. So the first step was to develop a stand-up plan built around 30-day sprints to say, you know, this is how we're going to eat the elephant, you know, one bite at a time, one sprint at a time, the next 30 days, here's what I hope to accomplish. And the overarching view was just like probably anything in life is, you know, if you have a compelling, urgent need, you borrow what you need uh, from people that you trust right away uh, until you can um, make other arrangements. So our, our initial staffing was borrowed resources from OIGs. And then we switched to reimbursable agreements for uh, those resources. Then we arranged and we arranged for, you know, detailees to staff. And then we slowly, we said, let's staff up our um, director level folks for the three lines of business next so that they can help develop their teams. And then between April 27th and September 30th, we just staffed the organization 30 day sprints at a time. And this is, and we, and we hit our mark, you know, several weeks ahead of time. I was wondering, you know, we had the uh, the bailout in 2008, which created the Recovery Accountability and Transparency Rat Board, as we referred to it as. So I'm wondering how similar is the PRAC to the 2009 Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board? What best practices have you adopted? What are the most significant lessons that were learned from that effort? And what are you trying to do differently to improve the effectiveness of the PRAC? Yeah. So when, uh, as I mentioned, the first uh, when we started uh, chatting, um, you know, with the CARES Act, it happened very, very quickly. And so Congress needed to look at a model to say, you know, how can we provide oversight? And the obvious model was the Recovery Act. So they took two of the sections from the Recovery Act and said, okay, let's let's modernize this to meet um, current times. Um, so we were uh, definitely modeled after that, but in, in charting our course, I mean, everybody has to recognize there are some key differences. Um, there's differences in the um, statutory governance, right? We have a we have a chair of the committee, which is an IG, which is currently acting chair Michael Horowitz, the DOJ IG, and then you have an executive director, myself. You have more of an explicit role in supporting IGs for the for the PRAC staff to both conduct and support oversight and support IGs in their work. And then there's mandates to leverage ex existing technology. So that's sort of one key difference. Um, second major, right, is that the, it's we're already three times larger in terms of dollars than the Recovery Act. And it's not just the amount of money, it's the nature of the spend. If you remember the Recovery Act, right, it was it was shovel-ready projects that you could get out in front of and build a transparency and then you were relying upon citizen IGs to look at a website and call a hotline to say, hey, it's reported in, on your website that there's going to be uh, a new police station built or a new municipal parking garage. I don't see that being built in my neighborhood, you know, out in whatever state. And so a lot of the, you know, it was driven by this whole citizen IG model of people being able to identify fraud in real time and report it. With us, a lot of the money's already been spent, right? So, and it's not tangible things. These are things like, you know, unemployment insurance and, and whatever. So it's um, super challenging. Two other things that I think are important to note is uh, with the recovery board, 
you know, you had the designation of a senior government official, the vice president, who happened to be Vice President Biden, was the recovery czar, right? He over he was a force multiplier for the recovery board to make sure that there was transparency affected throughout government. Um, we haven't had that uh, in our first couple of months. Um, and then the final thing is the the IGs back in 2009, they didn't have native data analytics capabilities to any large degree. Now a lot of them do. So the model is, while there's similarities in, in how we're structured and whatever, um, we have to meet a different need, uh, both in terms of the transparency of the data, but uh, more importantly is, is how we facilitate oversight across government. And so, you know, building a data analytics function is much different today than it was, you know, was back then. Certainly a lot of best practices that we are leveraging and relying upon, one of which is just the power of bringing the IGs together and so much more can be done. The power of having um, a top level data analytics capability. Those are the things that we're replicating, but we're also recognizing, you know, the differences. So Bob, what are some of the biggest challenges the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee is facing? Well, the biggest challenge is time is not on our side, right? And uh, we are playing catch up in a lot of ways, both in terms of acquiring data and developing new ways to do oversight. I find one of the biggest challenges is, and a lot of people don't fully grasp this, but in, a, in an oversight role, you're a step removed from the agency transactional level data. That's the point at which when you're seeing transactions in sort of real time, right, that's where you can put in fraud controls to prevent and detect fraud. Uh, de definitely prevent it. You can put in rules-based controls there, right, and you can detect it as early as possible. We're a step removed from that. So our ability to stop fraud in its tracks is somewhat limited, and I think that's a, the probably the biggest challenge facing the PRAC in our in our in our efforts to fight fraud is, you know, uh, how can we better work with management to make sure that they're fulfilling their role with, in fraud risk management? So, Bob, could you tell us more about the efforts to promote transparency on the usage of the $2.6 trillion in coronavirus relief funds? And more importantly, what is being done to provide the public with timely data and information on the usage of these funds and the coronavirus response in general? When the CARES Act was uh, signed into law on uh, March 27th, it contained a provision in there that said the uh, the PRAC uh, was required to establish a public website within 30 days. So that was a great gift in a timeline that Congress gave us, and we met that as a community. So on April 27th, the, the same date I was appointed and required to be appointed, uh, we launched a website. That website is at pandemicoversight.gov. And it is um, there's a number of things in statute that we're required to provide, and we're trying to provide more than that. We acquire data from various federal data spending uh, sources, and we map it. We make it searchable. We make it downloadable. And we combine it with other data, including accountability information, uh, OIG audit reports, for example, and investigative press releases. So, um, and and we we structured the website really to meet the needs of a of a range of of uh, of users. So it's really you know it 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 we we hope that it meets the needs of the casual member of the public that is just 
curious that is just going to the website for general information, you know, as well as power users and folks, you know, either in policy or academia that can go and download large data sets and do their own analysis of, uh, of the spend. We have um, on there now USA uh, spending data. We have um, links to, you know, other data sources and um, we hope to have launched by um, within the next 10 days on, on by um, November 30th, we'll have up the coronavirus relief fund data from uh, from Treasury. So um, and our plan is moving forward is right is to identify additional complementary federal data sources, ingest them into our system, um, map them, display them, make them searchable, make sense of the data and combine it with uh, federal accountability information so that, um, you know, policymakers can can make sense of, you know, how we spent our money and, and was, was it spent wisely. So, Bob, as a follow-up, um, I want to talk about the guidance offered to the public regarding these funds and their usage. So can you tell us more about your efforts to collaborate with the Office of Management and Budget on guidance, as well as your communication strategy to heighten the visibility of the efforts of PRAC. So, um, you know, we are independent from from OMB, so we're we're always mindful of uh, keeping uh, arm's length. But we have common interests. We have some irreconcilable differences, but we also have some common interests. And clearly, transparency of federal data is is uh, is a common interest. Working with OMB, you know, OMB put out guidance within a matter of a couple of weeks of the CARES Act on uh, federal transparency and 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 reporting. Uh, they put out additional guidance that largely said rely upon existing federal data sources, data reporting schemes with some modifications. Um, We've been um, working with them since then to, you know, to educate folks that, hey, that may not meet the full letter and spirit of the CARES Act. And so two things that working with OMB, we were, um, OMB issued the controller alerts, um, which are guidance to agencies to improve the reporting of project descriptions or award descriptions, which, you know, it's a well-known problem in the community. Um, and transparency is hard if you don't know exactly what the money's being spent on. So in a you know in a data field that says award description, you need to know exactly what it's being used for. That's the starting point. That's a foundation. So you know we're very pleased that that OMB um, issued that. Um, in terms of our work, we commissioned a study that was released the uh, independent uh, federally funded R and D center MITRE. We commissioned a study having them look at. Um, federal spending reporting mechanisms and uh, whether they met the requirements of the CARES Act. And MITRE uh, completed their report, which we issued and put on our website and uh, encourage anybody to, to look at it. They, they identified um, you know, a number of gaps in uh, federal report, financial reporting and also identified some opportunities for various entities to close those gaps. Some things will, are large, heavy level of effort with you know system changes and new policy or regulations or law. And some things are small level of effort. And you know we're of the mind, find the win-wins. Let's close the gap. And on the things that we can do now, let's let's do it. And so, you know, some of the uh, the recommendations or suggestions are to OMB, some are to Treasury, GSA, and 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 others. So that's um, that's how we're working. Otherwise, on trans on our communication strategy, 
we did something a little different. Uh, we established as one of our lines of business outreach and engagement. And we did that to really as acknowledgement of the fact that this is not a support function for us. This is one of our primary missions is to hopefully promote and increase data literacy across uh, our nation. I think it's to everybody's in everybody's best interest, and I think it's essential for a democracy for that um, people know how their government operates and, and are uh, relatively fluent in it. So um, it's a line of business we have. Through that line of business, we've uh, already conducted one public listening forum. We used our hearing authority to do a, a virtual listening forum. We uh, have another one coming up with some uh, financial entities. Uh, we've done outreach through our outreach and engagement, um, you know, we believe that we need to plug into um, academia. And so we've done an outreach to uh, to universities, which we, you know, hope will be a pipeline for us to, uh, to get new talent, data scientists in particular, new talent into the, uh, into the federal oversight community. Um, and we've also done outreach with, uh, you know, good government groups and, uh, and Congress as well. Bob, would you tell us more about the PRAC's efforts to prevent and detect fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. How are you working to mitigate major risks that cut across program and agency boundaries? And, you know, more interestingly, what are some of those risks that you're seeing? Yeah. So our third line of business is oversight and accountability. And that's the, the part, um, I like transparency. It's the heart of the mission. Um, we have uh, program managers who uh, their job is to create and maintain relationships with IGs and other stakeholders. And then we have project leads that they manage individual engagements. Several months ago, we issued a report, the top pandemic challenges, where we surveyed um, IGs and we got 39 uh, responses of folks that are uh, offices that are doing work in the pandemic area. And we asked them to identify the major risks um, that are cutting across program and agency boundaries. So we identified um, four at the top level. And they're not surprises, right? These are things that IGs have been reporting for years, but uh, I think everybody realizes when you have small problems, nagging problems that you don't fix, they become much worse uh, in the time of crisis. And so, you know, financial and the four areas of concern that we reported are financial management, um, grant and loan management, um, IT security and, and protecting health. And we've seen with grant and loan management, this, you know, I think our document went out before you really saw the explosion in the PPP fraud and the un, and before the reports of the unemployment insurance fraud area. But those are two programs that, um, you know, we, we've, we've, we're aware of problems uh, already. And so, you know, we alerted management, financial management, right? Reducing improper payments is, is an age old one for us. Um, so those are the top areas of concern. And what we're, what we're doing is we've got individual engagements now ongoing. Um, one on uh, COVID-19 testing across federal programs. Before the PRAC existed, right? You would get, you may get you know, five or six different reports from IGs talking about how testing is done at VA or within the federal prisons or DOD or or within Medicare programs. Um, now, with the PRAC's ability to coordinate IGs, we'll soon be issuing one report showing a whole of government perspective on how testing is being accomplished uh, throughout, uh, throughout these programs. Uh, we've got another ongoing project uh, um, that is looking at um, something that has been reported uh, 
in the media and I think, you know, people have uh, valid concerns about, which is um, new federal vendors who received um, pandemic related contracts. Right. We want to make sure that vendors are qualified to do work and actually can deliver the services of which they're contracted and that they appropriately receive the you know, contract consideration and, and contracts weren't awarded based upon sole source. Right. And those sorts of uh, criteria. So those are two things we're currently working on in terms of major risks. We also, we, you know, on our website, we highlight um, issues. One issue now which crosses government is um, self-certification. So you have both in the unemployment insurance fraud area and in an SBA's disaster loan area, the primary control in place, the primary fraud control was that the recipients of those benefits would self-certify that they were eligible for the benefits. Well, when you self-certify for that you're eligible for the benefits, it's uh, not terribly effective. So that's an example of sort of a risk that cuts across agency programs. And we've seen you know, profound fraud when agencies rely upon self-certification as a primary or sole fraud prevention control. So um, that's the kind of work that we're doing, you know, across the uh, whole of government, across agencies, and we continue to, to do more, more work in this space. So I have a follow-up, Bob, and it's around the capacity of PRAC to proactively prevent fraud, waste, abuse, as opposed to retrospectively detect it. What's the capacity there for the PRAC? And how are you holding wrongdoers accountable? And maybe you can share some of those stories. So in terms of the capacity for proactive prevention, that um, the PRAC does, but it's primarily at this point through the individual IGs. Case in point, um, IG Mike Ware of SBA is on the front end of a, of a massive amount of fraud. And so he's issued a number of alerts to management to say, hey, to prevent further losses in whichever program, um, we, re- we suggest or recommend that you do the following. So at the, at the larger level, global level, the IGs are doing, they're not doing rules-based testing on transactions to prevent fraud, right? But they're doing more larger statements of, uh, of deficiencies and programs that need to be addressed to, uh, to proactively prevent. So that's being done at the IG level, individual PRAC IG member level. The holding uh, wrongdoers accountable is, um, is uh, something that I think is, uh, is, is an interesting story. So in our, our first six months or until you know the our, our first reporting period, which ended September 30th, we had 12 IGs that um, were responsible for 241 indictments and 163 arrests for uh, COVID-related pandemic fraud. I think you know uh, anybody that watches the news, it's it's hard to go a day or two without seeing a another report of a PPP fraud case. There's been some several high-profile ones. Uh, one that comes to mind is an NFL player who, you know, allegedly was involved in a scheme involving $24 million in, in forgivable PPP loans. In the unemployment insurance area, there was a scheme in uh, Pennsylvania involving 33 uh, inmates at eight different jails and penitentiaries up in Pennsylvania that uh, conspired to defraud um, the Pennsylvania Unemployment Insurance Fraud Program. There are multiple, multiple, multiple accounts, public accounts in the unemployment insurance fraud area. That's one where you're seeing um, an international uh, nexus and uh, 
you know, or, more organized crime. It's not just, uh, you know, one-off uh, actors, single actors, um, bad actors. These are, these are cases that are, that are pretty complex in nature. What is the PRAC doing to prevent and detect fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement of COVID-19 relief funds? I'll ask its executive director, Bob Westbrooks, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bob Westbrooks, Executive Director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC. So, Bob, does the nature of fraud, waste, and abuse observed by the PRAC to date seem more opportunistic or organized? And with the varied impacts, uh, does the PRAC have a model in place for the prioritization of applications reviewed for fraud, waste, and abuse? I will say, based upon anecdotal evidence, the fraud is rampant, pervasive, it's brazen. Sometimes it's crude, sometimes it's sophisticated, sometimes it's small fishes, sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, international organized crime with uh, very complex components. Um, the fraud complaints uh, typically come in, they go, they're uh, handled directly by the individual OIGs. Now, we have a hotline on our website, pandemicoversight.gov, and we will make sure any IG receives, uh, you know, cognizant IG is going to receive the, the complaint. We are, one of the things that we're working on, I mentioned in our oversight and accountability function is, um, We've got project leads um, that are working with individual IGs. One of the things we're working on is developing risk models to help them triage and prioritize um, the complaints and, and to really help them guide in their investigative resources because there are many offices right now that are just drowning in not only fraud complaints, but um, you know real fraud cases. They have uh, significantly more real fraud cases, actionable fraud cases than they can possibly handle. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I think we can add value there is to, uh, as in the area of applied technology and building risk models for them. So, Bob, can you describe your partnership and collaboration with the agencies and IGs, which are overseeing much of this money? And outside of government, what is PRAC doing to partner with private industry to monitor the usage of funds? So, um, you know, we we have the outreach and uh, engagement um, directorate that um, will be doing more partnering with private industry. Right now, it's being done primarily at the individual IG level. And a good example of that is the uh, SBA's 
Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. They did a, a fascinating report a couple months back, uh, identifying serious concerns of potential fraud in the in the IDLE program. And the basis for that was a significant volume of complaints from financial institutions, right? And the, which are inherently um, valuable and credible fraud complaints, right? When you've got the financial institution that was allegedly def- defrauded, who most likely has done some legwork on their investigation and has reported it to SBA. So there's a um, tremendous amount of liaison going at the individual IG level. And, you know, we hope to step into that as uh, in the in the coming months. Bob, how do you see the use and application of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning and cloud computing in meeting the mission of the PRAC? So on the cloud computing, it's easy. It's our website and our pandemic oversight platform is uh, it's an Azure cloud based system. Um, we are looking at things in the in the following way and that you know we're going to be successful when we look back in five years and we can point to specific examples where we've applied AI and machine learning to to practical problems and didn't just add them on as novelties or gimmicks and I think that you know sometimes when you're dealing with new technology it's unavoidable that um, things can be uh, slightly gimmicky um, for us, we don't have that luxury of uh, of 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 that. So it's going to have to be very practical problems. I mentioned, you know, problem with the uh, in the recovery board days was um, finding fraud in the data and using technology and data analytics to find fraud in the data. We have plenty of fraud that's been identified. We need to now use technology and AI to shorten the investigative process and substitute out the you know, whatever we can substitute technology for shoe leather. You can't, you're always going to have shoe leather on cases, unavoidable, right? You're dealing with, dealing with people, witnesses and whatever. Um, but to the extent that we can make life easier for investigators and, and shorten the life cycle of their cases, that's the sweet spot of what we're looking for. And I think technology is, is really the answer in that space, right? We got to be able to substitute uh, in AI and machine learning here. And I, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for us. So, Bob, does the PRAC have a role in measuring the effectiveness of the CARES Act funds that have been spent? Or is its role just simply to identify fraud, waste, and abuse? And if it does have a role in measuring the effectiveness, how is it measuring, what is it measuring, and what data is being analyzed? That's a that's a great question. You know, we indirectly, in terms of our statutory authorities, we are to evaluate, in addition to waste, fraud, and abuse, is to evaluate, you know, the the classic IG three E's of economy, efficiency, and effectiveness. But you know, when we do work in that space and scoping the work in that space, you're, we're really talking about, you know, are the programs being run in a manner that's economical, efficient, and effective, which is different than the desired ideal state of, you know, evidence-based policy-making evaluations. I think we're Agencies are a ways off in that area, and I think uh, it's an opportunity for everybody to grow and sort of measuring the effectiveness. That's clearly the sweet spot, and I think there are a lot of very expensive economists now looking at, at this exact issue. It's just very hard to um, scope a specific audit 
to get a meaningful results in, in measuring the effectiveness of some of these things, but we're, we're doing our best. Bob, in the short time you've, you've been around and the PRAC has been in existence, there have been some success to talk about. What are some of the big success stories associated with what you're doing thus far? Well, uh, I think it's pretty remarkable that we stood up our organization and, and, and brought on the team that we have from private industry and, uh, uh, you know, uh, GAO experience and OIG experience in the short time frame that we did. Um, and this week, I mean, we sort of hit our high water mark. We issued um, pretty sweeping guidance to OIGs and other oversight partners on um, how to do uh, what we call agile oversight, right? How do you do oversight in this new environment? Because it's it's not going away tomorrow and we still have an, uh, an important oversight mission. So I'm really proud that we were able to bring the community together to say, hey, let's think about uh, in a very disciplined approach, let's think about our professional standards. How can we fundamentally, how can we deliver insights now to policymakers and the public? That's fundamentally what we need to do. Yeah, we need to arrest people who are committing fraud, but fundamentally people need insights now. And uh, so we put out this Agile Oversight Toolkit that I'm, I'm really, really proud of, as well as this, uh, this, this very comprehensive MITRE report that I mentioned earlier. Bob, what more is being done to ensure effective and efficient PRAC operations? What actions are you taking to attract the best professionals to the PRAC and build a diverse team of innovative thought leaders that can actually achieve the mission, the important mission of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee? Yeah, so, you know, we leaned into this, uh, the limitations of the pandemic and used it to our advantage and said, look, let's let's develop and build ourselves from the beginning as, as, and as a distributed workforce in a virtual workplace. Um, let's use our hiring superpowers that Congress gave us uh, in the CARES Act Right, a lot of times agencies get authorities and they don't fully use them in an, in an aggressive manner. Well, let's use ours, right? We're we we have the authority to do direct hire, you know, accepted service. We have detail authority. We have reemployed annuit and authority. Well, let's let's use all of those all at the same time to get the best people on board that we can, regardless of zip code. And, and we did, you know, and, and in recruiting, we did very targeted recruitment using our collective networks. Uh, and, and we went into it like, you know, I don't, I don't need another me. There's a lot of area that I uh, am not, you know, it's not in my area of expertise. So let's hire complementary skill sets. And that's what we did. And that's how we brought and and we purposefully wanted a mix of folks with deep program knowledge. So we brought on a couple of people that were from the RAT board. Um, so we've got RAT board experience folks, including the former chair of the RAT board is uh, interim director for us of transparency, Kathy Tai, who's just a wealth of experience, who's the former, I uh, not only the chair of the the RAP board, but the former IG of the Department of Education. So she's on staff, which is a tremendous resource for us. And then we've got folks that have GAO experience, private, you know, federal consulting experience, and just private nonprofit experience as well. So I'd like to turn to the future, Bob. Um, what do you see as your highest priority over the next couple of years? And, and more importantly, what would you want to achieve over that period? It's really to bring together the community have is a whole of government approach using all the tools I think at our disposal. I think um, it's always been a, a, a criticism and perhaps a fair criticism or observation of the 
law enforcement community that, um, you know, there's or oversight community that there's uh, audits and investigations. Well, there's there's a lot of tools in the toolbox with civil authorities, administrative authorities and so forth, analytics. So um, but but what drives us fundamentally is when we're done in five years, we want there to be an enduring impact right on on transparency and accountability, not just in raising the bar generally, but um, sadly, I think we all know this isn't going to be the last disaster or um, event that we're going to have to deal with, and we can't be unprepared again, right? So if if we can work with OMB to make significant progress so that we can be better prepared, I think we'll um, we'll we'll all be better for it. And um, to me, it's you know you use these these terms, you know it's. Agile oversight and applied technology. You know, if you, we can make advances there, um, I think we'll be uh, hugely successful. That's great, Bob. So before we close today, I'd like to get your advice. Uh, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? So, uh, you know, I think um, public trust in government now may be at uh, at, at an all time low, but once you once you filter out the the hyper partisan politics, I think you'll see. As, as I've seen over 26 year career, you know, you work with and you meet with some of the brightest, most dedicated professionals you could imagine. And these are folks that are not just here to collect a paycheck, right? They're committed to their mission of their particular agencies, which affect the lives of people every day, farmers, the unemployed, people who need housing, food, whatever, right? And so my advice to folks is, you know, to, to filter out the noise, find the mission, fall in love with the mission, and just get to work. And there, the federal government offers a tremendous amount of opportunities. You don't have to stay in a particular agency. Once you fall out of love with the mission of your agency, find another and r- rinse and repeat and do it all over again. So, Bob, that's terrific advice. I, wa- I want to thank you for joining me today and taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. But more importantly, Bob, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This has been the Business of Government Hour. A conversation with Bob Westbrooks, Executive Director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, PRAC. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thank you for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.